Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Sustainability Speaks. I'm your host, Anastasia. And on today's podcast, I'm very excited to welcome Amanda Sanders from Rodi Architects. They deeply focus on integrating sustainability and resiliency into their projects throughout the greater Boston area and beyond. Amanda, it's a pleasure having you with me today. Would you like to introduce yourself and please tell us a little bit more about Rodi? Sure, yeah. Um, and thanks so much for having me on, Anastasia. Um, it's really exciting to be here speaking with you today. Um, so I'm a registered architect. I have a Bachelor of Architecture from Iowa State University. I am from Iowa originally, and I moved to Boston about 15 years ago after a brief stint in New York City. Um, my first introduction to Rhodey, um is actually, it was actually at a neighborhood planning board meeting where Kevin and Eric were presenting a mixed-use building down the street from my house and um, that I had recently purchased. And it turns out, you know, we're actually neighbors. And I would say about half of the office lives within about a two-mile radius of, um, of this, you know, within the neighborhood, which is really exciting. That is very exciting indeed, very uh, close in proximity, so to say. Um, I think what will be very interesting if you could perhaps elaborate a bit more on the problems that Rodi is aiming to tackle within the architecture space. Sure. So um, Kevin and Eric met in college and they um, they moved to Boston um, after college. They I think they were working in separate firms and ended up settling in Dorchester, which is the neighborhood I live in, and as I mentioned, several of my colleagues. And, you know, Dorchester is an inner city neighborhood with lots of, you know, working class housing, and they really saw a need for design and community-focused smart development within the neighborhood. Dorchester had been a really vibrant, walkable place, but a lot of things I think changed over time and sort of the small nodes of community had been lost and they were seeing opportunities to sort of infuse that back into where they were, where they consider home. Um, So that's kind of, you know, I I think that's where the, that's where it started and, and things are, you know, that approach um, has, as the firm has grown and built over up over time has um, continued to, be a main focus as we do projects throughout Boston and greater New England. Great. Thank you so much for that overview um, and also uh, giving us a bit of background detail about how the organization came about. Just now delving a bit deeper into the further questions in relation to the specific work that Rodi does. I know that's something that has come up is great design. So it would be very interesting to hear from you, does great design have the power to transform our environment? And also how do you perhaps define sustainability within the architectural space? Yeah, I think great design is is critical. Um, and and it is a, absolutely a core tenet of how Rhodey um, operates. So 
in 2005, Kevin and Eric actually started the firm in, um, in, I believe in Kevin's house with a little restaurant renovation across from the local tea station. And that project has spurred further development within the node right there. And it's now a bustling little village. And, you know, there's the, the project and several of the buildings that are now there are, you know, infill pieces that have, that are sort of sensitively integrated into the neighborhood, but without being formulaic. So, you know, they have their sort of their own language and their own, um, you know, program that responds to the architectural language, but they really have been a catalyst for this sort of new node, community node within Dorchester. Um, and then, you know, I think taking that further, great design is also critical for mitigating climate change. Buildings produce 40% of the world's greenhouse gases. And, um, you know, I think the way for architects to really impact our greater environment is to really take on this challenge of working through innovative, collaborative uh, design solutions that are also beautiful um, in order to make the world a place that we can continue to live in. Also, something that I personally have a great interest in hearing your opinion on is green architecture and also biophilic architecture. Earlier on, when we started this podcast, uh, Saskia and I did do an episode about green architecture, but it was just us two and neither of us are architects, mm-hmm. both of us are lawyers. Um, yeah. And I also did a blog post where I researched biophilic architecture and biophilic design when mm-hmm. I found it absolutely fascinating. So I think just getting your op- opinion on both of those and, you know, if there's space to also pin them against each other, it would just be very interesting to get your insight. Sure. Well, so I'm not sure I fully answered um, the question about how I define sustainability. Um, so maybe I'll start there. I, I think of sustainability as a holistic approach. Um, it's not a, you know, it's not only about driving down the energy use and reducing carbon, although that is a clear charge that I think we all in the building and design and construction industry have right now. Um, But it's also about creating walkable, livable places. It's about being thoughtful about the materials that we use and the impact that those have on the users. Um, It's about water, reducing our consumption and figuring out how we live with water and around water, especially in Boston with sea level rise. Um, Green architecture is often synonymous with sustainability in my experience. It's, um, you know, it's, it's energy, it's carbon, it's place, it's materials, it's people, and, and designing around all of that. Biophilic design is a piece of that, where you use nature in design to, um, you know, whether that's using greenery, uh, actually inside the building or creating connections between the inside and outside using natural materials such as wood throughout the design. Um, and so, you know, I think, um, well, bio, biophilic design, there's, there have been studies that prove that stress levels are reduced in the presence of 
you know, greenery and forms of nature. So I think that just goes back to designing around comfortable, livable, work pla workable places for, for people, um, especially when you're designing places where people, you know, live. It's most of what Rody's work is, I guess I should say. I think it would be great to hear from you about passive house design. And the reason yeah. I asked this question, just to give a bit of background information to the listeners, is because Rody designed what will be Boston's first certified passive housing project. And it's called the Brucewood Single Family Home, which uses building techniques that address energy usage and air tightness, resulting in significant and long lasting primary energy savings compared to homes built in the more con conventional way. So yeah. Amanda, what has been your experience with passive house design? Yeah, so passive house is, is really interesting. It's, um, there are several metrics within um, the, the design and construction industry that we can use to measure our, um, our sustainability um, goals and aspirations. So passive house is, is one of those. LEED is probably one you've heard of. That's, that's another. Um, living building challenge, that's another. So passive house is really focused on, um, it was developed in Germany. And it was, it's really focused on driving down the energy use of a building. They do this by super insulating the, the exterior envelope. So most of the envelopes for a passive house building are about twice as thick. They do this through um, air tightness. So making sure that everything is really well sealed, um, solar orientation and compact forms, really maximizing the the exterior envelope because that's where you have the heat loss and air transfer. Um, and then through that, you're able to reduce the mechanical systems. And then because everything is so tight, um, you know, you want to make sure that, that there's ventilation, um, air, fresh air coming in so that we don't get sick building syndrome. Um, passive house is a really rigorous metric and certification system. Um, it, we do lots of energy modeling in design for specifically for passive house. Um, I mean, for most of our projects get and have energy models, but but passive house, um, you know, it's it's super critical to start those early to make adjustments to make sure that you're hitting the targets, which are really robust. Um, and then actually, there's a there's rigorous testing that has to be done. Uh, up once the project is complete in order to confirm that the building actually meets those requirements. So I can give you an example of, of um, how we might, how we, uh, how pa the passive, how the Bruce Wood homes actually um, perform compared to um, the typical home. So an energy intensive home can range anywhere from 100 to 200, um, EUI, which is energy use intensity, that means it's that's the measure of energy that is used per square foot per year. So basically, that's a way of sort of leveling the playing field uh, along the different uses, use types. And no matter where you are in the world, um, energy use intensity is kind of a, a, it, it really gets to the core of the matter, right? It's the energy per square foot per year. So a high performance home might be a quarter of that. So, so 25, an EUI of 25. 
in order to be passive house certified, a, a building needs to be needs to meet 14.6 or less. And I'm really excited that um, we just actually did testing on the Brucewood homes and they're coming in right around 10. So that's that's really, really great. And those homes are also solar ready. So they don't have um, solar panels yet, but they have the ability to um, easily add them and that would make their energy use intensity zero or maybe even negative, which means that they're um, net zero buildings. That's super exciting. And is this quite a new style, not style, but like method of designing houses? Because I personally haven't heard of it before, but then again, I'm not um, in the architectural space. So. So it's been around in Europe for a while. And I think, as I mentioned, it's, you know, this was founded in Germany. I think it's, it's, well, I know it's very hard to achieve it, especially through conventional um, building methods. So it is gaining more popularity and we are seeing um, Rody as we've as we've gone through this process, we're actually seeing that more and more projects are coming in wanting to do studies to understand whether or not um, they might be good fits for passive house. It's probably not going to be for all, but I think that it we're seeing actually within the uh, actually within Boston, if the project is a passive house project, it actually clears some of the hurdles in the um, city review process as well. So it's uh, it's definitely a benefit and the the cost of the building operations are so drastically reduced that it's uh, I think it's becoming pretty intriguing for more and more owners. And as we're on the topic of different types of design, uh, could you also tell myself and the listeners a bit more about resiliency planning and also some of the projects that Rodi is working on in relation to this type of planning? Yeah, so we have a really exciting project uh, done in Neponset Wharf, which is also in Dorchester. Um, it's a project that I was following even before I started it at Rody because um, it is right on the the waterfront and it's you know this site is at risk of sea level rise both the site itself and the neighborhood the site the existing site is a mostly asphalt site that was an industrial sort of shipyard space adjacent to a, a residential neighborhood and you know Rody's design really transforms this site to a mixed-use development, we are looking at reactivating the waters, the water's edge, and implementing um, vegetation, natural, local vegetation um, strategies, and for the site to sort of take on water, but to you know also implement the city of Boston climate-ready measures, which. Some of the buildings have sort of breakaway panels where water, like if there was a crash of a wave, the energy of that wave would be would be taken up by the by the building and, and the water can come in. And then there are areas where, we, where we've actually raised the site so that, you know, those buildings are still able to be fully um, inhabited and occupied during a flooding event. And this allows um, emergency access to the site. It allows shelter in place. And it's really exciting that this project is also going for um, passive house design. So it's an opportunity for us to scale what we've learned at the Brucewood homes up in a much bigger 
multi-building development, which is very exciting. And also for this specific project, you've spoken about the waterfront resilience because it's right on the water. I mm-hmm. presume that resiliency planning can also work in other types of projects, perhaps where there are other or, or, or different types of threats, so to say, to the to the structural building due to which, which can arise due to climate change or just the change of landscape, right? So there are diff- many different types of of resiliency. I think in in this instance, you know, we're we're really focusing on on the water coming into the site. So we're looking at how we locate the electrical equipment so that the site can can, can remain operational. It turns out, you know, that's actually kind of hard to do because the, you know, the utilities want the electrical equipment on the first floor, but if the site is going to flood, you don't want that, right? Um, if we're talking, you know, there are other ways to, other types of resiliency that are needed in other parts of the country. There, you know, in California, you know, the earthquake threat is much greater. And so there are ways that structures are designed and um, unreinforced masonry buildings need to be, um, you know, evaluated so that those buildings can can be maintained in those types of events or fire events. You know, um, you know, a lot of that has to do with uh, with water, but water in the opposite direction, right? Like they don't have enough water, which is what's causing the fires. And, you know, in, in Boston, we can end up having too much. Um, it's brackish water. It's not water we can drink, but you know, it's, so there's a, I think there are different strategies depending on, um, where you are in the country and what your threat for climate change is. And moving on to the last question, which is also about um, a style or a method of building, designing. Could you tell us a bit more about adaptive reuse, please, and also how it's a key part of some of the projects that Rhodey's working on? Absolutely. Um, adaptive reuse is sort of key to my heart. It's I have a background in preservation and um, existing buildings, and adaptive reuse is really where I get aside from sustainability, really excited. Um, It's essentially reusing um, the existing building for a new purpose. And, you know, I think in terms of adaptive reuse and sustainability, one of the biggest conversation pieces is the carbon piece. All of the things that we have around us are associated, you know, it takes carbon to, to make them. And so when we build a new building, we're, we're making new things that have that have embodied carbon. When we're using an existing building, we are reusing materials that have already, you know, that carbon has already been been used. We call that embodied carbon. And so we don't need to, especially when we're saving, we find that there are ways of, of modeling carbon uh, in different building materials. And, you know, not surprisingly, the the cladding, the envelope, the structure tend to be the biggest pieces of um, of carbon that go into a building, right? And so when we're reusing those, we're actually saving that. So even if you can't get an existing building to be as airtight and energy tight as a passive house building, in some cases, you're going to, if you look at the carbon alone, you're going to spend less carbon if you think of it in terms of a, of a bank account, 
right? Um, you're going to spend less carbon um, just by upgrading the systems, probably adding some insulation, doing a little bit of air sealing, um, then, then maybe even some of our most, our best performing new buildings. So it's, you know, there's a quote out there that, that I love and it's been shared over and over, but it's, you know, the existing building is the greenest building. And there really is um, some truth to that. Um, and Amanda, could you please tell myself and the listeners about the 2030 challenge that Rody has in place? Yeah. So, um, I'm relatively new to Rody. I was actually at my previous firm for 11 years. And in that firm, I was focused on preservation and existing buildings, but I was also a core member of the sustainability practice group there. So when I came to Rody, I started the sustainability group at Rody, and we um, have, I'm, I'm really excited to be able to say that we've signed on to the AAA 2030 challenge, which is, um, a challenge from the American Institute of Architects for all architecture and design firms to reach net zero by the year 2030. So what this means is it's really a database that you input all of the projects in the office, the, the energy and the carbon. And so Rody was already doing a lot of energy modeling for just about every project in the office was already being energy modeled. Um, and that's critical because then we, you know, we know that we're meeting code or beating code, which is, you know, the goal. Um, but that, you know, we actually have a sense of how the building might perform. What the 2030 challenge does it is it actually like forces us to collect the data, to evaluate the data, to look at it, to learn from what we're doing really well on some projects and like where we can, where we can take that, you know, in the future and, and really ratchet that down. So the, the goals for the 2030 challenge are aggressive, but they, they need to be, if we're going to, if we're going to get there. So um, I'm excited to see all the collection of this data come together and really talk about it as a firm. And, and I think it also gives us the opportunity to, um, share with others in the design industry, you know, lessons and tools that that we're learning, especially um, as we embark on things like Passive House and and other initiatives. So, Amanda, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great speaking with you. And to all the listeners, I will be including links to Rody in the description of this podcast. So please do check them out. And please don't forget to follow Sustainability Speaks on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook for future updates. So thank you for listening. And Amanda, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me.